Mark chapter 8. Gospel of Mark chapter 8. We are continuing to go through this great Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, the shortest Gospel of the four, the most sequential Gospel of the four. And here's this man that the Holy Spirit inspires to write down the the, the works, the ministry, the life, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we have this here, and we have been, if you're, if you're new here, or you, maybe this is your first time, we have been, not exactly verse by verse, but certainly chapter by chapter, going through for these now a number of months and looking and seeing what God has done. So we're, we're continuing to do that today. I, I, I have so enjoyed this. I have absolutely loved and learned so much uh, uh, through this Gospel of Mark, uh, unlike really uh, I've ever done before. This is the first time I've ever preached through a Gospel. And so I trust that you're receiving a great deal. I, I certainly am. So this morning, turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And while we're going to read it here in a moment, I'm going to start in a lot, in a, in a, in a very, uh, not frivolous, but in a, in, a, in a rather light way. How many here, how many here um, have, ever, have ever ridden on a roller coaster? Let me see your hands. You've ridden on a roller coaster. Okay, those of you who did not raise your hand, there is still time. You can still get on a roller coaster. Now, I don't know, there, there's a lot of different feelings about Some people really love them, they've done it once, and they go check the box, never going to do that again. Some people, they can't get enough of them, but roller coasters are interesting things. Now, um, I, I've ridden a number of them, though I, I haven't for some years because because, well, they're not fun anymore, but, but I, I, I used to ride them quite a bit, and, and, and I, I learned a few things about roller coasters. Roller coasters have a couple of different parts to them. The first part of a roller coaster ride, and if you've been on it, you can certainly relate to this, the first part of a roller coaster ride is relatively easy. You're in the cart, you make that slow click, 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 climb to the top, the highest part of the ride. It's a very pleasant experience. It's, it's relatively sedate as you're making your way up there. There's, and you get to the very top, right? You all know what I'm talking about. When you arrive at the very top, you're hardly moving at all. In fact, in some cases, in some roller coasters, you get to the very top and then you stop. You have this beautiful vantage point. You may have been in the amusement park for a couple of hours, but suddenly you're at the very highest part of the amusement park and you, you look around and you see the foliage and you see the other rides and you see the people way down there. You have this vantage point that is unlike any other place in the park. I like this first part, by the way. This is my favorite part. In fact, if, if roller coasters would take you simply to that point and then back you down slowly, that would be just fine with me. I like this part. The second part of the roller coaster experience begins, however, just moments later when everything begins to speed up very rapidly you suddenly find yourself plummeting toward the earth. Actually, you're falling to your death. And the beautiful view of a, just a moment before is largely forgotten. And, and this, this plummet, this, this rapid downhill descent is, is a shock to the system. You scream. Some idiots raise their hands, not me. I, I white-knuckle it. <laughs> You, you, you confess sins on your way down. There are people there that are, con in fact, there are people there that are confessing sins that they didn't commit, but they're just making sure you know what I'm talking about. That's what happens on the way down. The third part of the roller coaster experience begins right after you arrive at the bottom of the plummet. You realize you're going to survive, but you suddenly then make a hard right. I mean a really hard right. And your body, because it is secured into the cart with straps and all the different apparatus, because it's secured into the cart, it also makes a very hard right with the cart. However, your brain and internal organs momentarily continue in the straight line. This is disturbing, <laughs> You don't like that feeling, and you all know what that feeling is. It's like the heart is over here, but the body's over here. But it's not done. It's not done. 
Because the lunatic who designed the ride included a truly, a truly demented element called the corkscrew. This is unexpected. Down is up and up is down. Nothing is right in the world. Having confessed sins, now you begin making vows like, God, if you get me off of this, I will dedicate my first two children to you or something like that. And you want to get off, but you can't. You want to get off, at least I do, some people do. You want to get off, but you can't because you're strapped in for the duration. You, you've already signed up for the ride, and you may not have expected this, but here you are. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's addressing his disciples, and the narrative, the story, if you were to read it in its entirety, the narrative between Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, just, just a dozen verses, is much like those elements of a roller coaster ride. Let me explain. There, there are high points in this narrative that we have actually started to read a couple of weeks ago. Um, in this narrative, there are some incredible, beautiful, wonderful vantage points. They're followed by some unexpected twists and turns and plummets started out simple enough. Jesus and his disciples were walking along, and in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, we looked at again at it two weeks ago, Jesus asked his disciples as they were walking along, who do people say that I am? It was an innocent enough question, and, and they had an easy answer. They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, so imagine this in your mind. It's, it's kind of like the click, 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 getting up to a certain point. It's very calm. Who do people say that I am? Well, you're, you're John the Baptist. You're, you're after the order or the style or the methodology of John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. It was very easy. It's very sedate at this point because it's always easy to repeat what someone else has said. You ever been around a person that never had an original thought in their life and they just kind of repeat what other people say? That's what they're doing. They're simply saying, well, this is what some people say. This is what other people say. Nothing too aggressive at this point. Easy question, easy answer. But then in verse 29, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? This was the second question. But who do you say? That? Now it's directed to them personally. This was a little harder. This, not so many people spoke up. But Peter did. One of the disciples, Peter, said, You are the Christ. Now, now back to the roller coaster analogy, they, they have suddenly come to the the high point, a, a, a vantage point unlike they've ever been before. It was a significant moment. When Peter said, you are the Christ, this was a big moment. That declaration, that declaration made, actually prompted by God through one of the disciples, gave all of the disciples an amazing vantage point like the top of the roller coaster. And the disciples who are in this place, strapped in, been following Jesus now for a little bit more than two years, are, are suddenly seeing Jesus in a whole new way. Some may have suspected it, some may have thought it, but finally, prompted by God, Peter says it. And they are looking around, and they've never seen anything quite like this. Understand, when Peter, prompted by God, uh, called Jesus the Christ, he was not assigning a name. I, I know I shared this two weeks ago, but in the event that you weren't here, when he called Jesus the Christ, he was not giving him an additional name. Christ is a title, not a name. It's a title that means Messiah. Messiah. So he, he essentially said this, you are the Messiah. Messiah means one who comes to make all things right. Or one who comes to make all things just. You have to understand, for hundreds of years, 
For hundreds of years, Jewish people had waited for the Messiah. They would longed for the Messiah. They had prayed for the Messiah. The one who would come and make all things right. The one who would come and bring justice to a very unjust world. They'd been praying it for a long time. These disciples, good Jewish people, they had been praying this and looking for the Messiah for a very, very long time. And here, here they suddenly realize, here He is. The disciples, just again, picture this in your minds. The disciples with this unprecedented vantage point, began seeing Jesus in an entirely new way. In fact, they would never see him in the same way before that they, that they did before. They, 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 they would, from this point on, always see Jesus differently. It was like being at the top of a roller coaster and looking around and going, wow, this is big. <laughs> this is magnificent. It was an awesome view. Jesus, the Messiah. But like that, that roller coaster illustration I gave, the disciples didn't remain in that place of reverie very long. Because in verse 31 it says this, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the one who was just declared the Messiah, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. Moments before, it had been wonderful for the disciples. Moments before, they were at the top of the hill, and they're looking around, and they're going, Whoo, this is wonderful. Jesus is the Messiah. We've been with Him for two years. We're with Him. This is really good. And in the next moment, suddenly, things fall out from under them when this one that they believe now increasingly to be the Messiah, this one tells them that He is going to suffer, and He is going to be rejected, and that He is going to die, and then He is going to be raised from the dead. One of their own had just been de just declared Jesus to be the Messiah, but now things suddenly change. Things speed up rapidly. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if some of them kind of wanted to say, let, let, let's go back to the top and just kind of stay there for a while. But Jesus didn't. In the narrative, this happens very, very quickly. Jesus goes right to this and he says, he says to them, he said to them, that he would suffer, be rejected, that he would die and then be raised from the dead. Jesus' words were shocking to them. They were disturbing to them. The revelation of a moment earlier had taken an unexpected plummet. Long-awaited messiahs are not supposed to suffer and face rejection and die. That is not how it's supposed to be. In fact, Jesus' words were so shocking that in, in the next verse, in verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Can you picture that? <laughs> Peter, Peter says, Jesus, come over here. You know what? You can't be telling people you're going to suffer and die because you're the Messiah. Correcting Jesus. But it was disturbing to the disciples to hear this. It was like almost more than they could process. But Jesus wasn't done. In fact, in some, ways, in some ways, for them, it would have been emotionally easier, not, not in the long run easier, but emotionally easier if Jesus would have just stopped right there, but he wasn't done. To borrow again from that roller coaster analogy, what Jesus then said in verse 34, pushed them sideways and turned them upside down. Remember, this is an unbroken narrative. Jesus is saying these things rather rapidly. Verse 34 reads this way, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Again, the 12 disciples had been with Jesus for a little bit more than two years. But here it says, again at the very beginning of that verse, it says he called the crowd to him with the disciples. So picture this. It's not just the 12 disciples, but he gathers others around them. And he's speaking not just to the select 12, the faithful 12, but he's talking to the entire crowd 
And he told all of them that if they were going to come after him, if, if they were going to come after him, if they were going to be a part of him, if they were going to be a part of what he was doing, they would do three things. They would deny themselves, they would take up their cross, and they would follow him. And, and I promise you that in their minds as they're trying to process this, it's almost as if their world turns upside down. It was shocking. The words that Jesus said, not only to the people that had been following him for two years, but the people that had been following him for perhaps two minutes. He gives this to them? So the big question for them, as they heard this, and just as importantly, the big question for us, is what does this mean? These three things, what, what does it mean to deny Ourself. What, what does that mean? You ever, I mean? This is a familiar portion of Scripture, but you ever wonder, what does that mean to deny ourselves? What, what is it? Second question, what does it mean to pick up our cross? And, and the third question, what does it really mean to follow Him? Those are the three big questions. What does it mean to deny oneself? What does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to follow Him? Jesus said, the first thing there, Jesus said, let Him deny Himself. Without doing any injustice to Scripture, you can turn that to women as well. Let her deny herself. Jesus said, let Him deny. Let that person who's going to come after me deny Himself. What does that mean? Well, sometimes in, in explaining something, you have first have to explain what it's not. And uh, let me first address what it does not mean by giving up something or what it does not mean by denying ourselves. It does not mean giving up something for a time. Uh, that would be easy. It does not mean inflicting some kind of hardship on ourselves. That would be a little harder, but still relatively easy. Many people think, think that's what it means. When Jesus said, deny yourself, that means, well, we, we say no to meat or to sugar or to chocolate or to a soft bed, that, that in doing so, we will somehow please Him. But it's actually much more. It, it's not taking something out of our lives. It's denying our... Oh, and this is going to... This is going to rock some of your worlds. In fact, this is going to really be counterculture to some of you. It means to deny our selfhood. It means to give up or to refuse our right to self-governance. It means that we surrender our will and our plan and our identity to His will and to carry out His plan, and to take on His identity. And while that may sound pretty innocuous looking at that, <coughs> deny yourself, it actually is far-reaching. It means that though I might have a plan, I surrender it to His plan. Though I might think there's a purpose for my life, I surrender it to His purpose for my life. Instead of holding on to my identity whatever it might be. And by the way, we often identify ourselves in a lot of different ways. We say, I am this, or I belong to this group, or I speak this language, or I am of this ethnicity, or I am of this uh, income level. We, we put things on us, but when we deny ourselves, it means that we we reject all of the other identifying factors that are placed upon us or we place upon ourselves and we say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It is denying our selfhood. Now that's very contrary to the thinking of this world because, because in our world it's all about self-actualization. It's all about that I am the measure of my world. That's what our world says. That's what our culture says. But Jesus here is saying we, we reject that. We deny self. If you're, Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, then you have to put all of that 
aside, take on my purpose, my plan, and my identity. We call this the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's a little declaration of surrender. Lordship implies ownership. That if He is truly the Lord of my life, then I am no longer in charge of myself. Do you know that a person who has truly surrendered their life to Jesus Christ can no longer say, I am in charge? You can't. You can't. And if you think that you're still in charge, then I question whether Jesus is in fact the Lord of your life. It's a pretty strong statement that Jesus made. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. When Jesus died on the cross, when He rose from the dead, because of His sacrifice, when we give ourselves to Him, when we surrender ourselves to Him, we're suddenly no longer our own. And we can't claim rights to ourselves. I am only in Him. So He can do with me whatever He wants. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, because you've been bought with a price, the price Jesus paid on Calvary, the cross, because you were bought with a, with a price, that's not your body, it's His. We can't say, this is my body, I can do with it what I want. No, because if I've given my life to Jesus, then it's His body. It's not your time, you can't say, well, that's my time, that's my time. Nothing is going to get into my time. You can't do that. Now, we can still have personal time, but it, it, it's surrendered to Him. So if He wants to do something with our time, other than what we want to do with that time, that's fine, because He's the Lord of our life. It's not your abilities, it's not an ability that you possess, it's, a, it's an ability that He has given you for a time, and it's to be used for His glory, not yours. It's not your schedule, it's His schedule. This is big, this is big. When Jesus said, deny yourself, wow, it's not, you know, I think I'm going to give up meat on Fridays. Well, that's good enough. Wouldn't that be easy? No, it's so much further reaching. It's, I give myself to Him. Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, you must deny self. The second thing Jesus said, you understand, this is, why the, this is kind of why what Jesus said was turning them upside down. The second thing Jesus said we are to do, if we're going to come after Him, is to take up our cross. You see it there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. We actually sang about that this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to take up our cross? Well, again, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to carry some kind of hardship or burden. I know it's often used that way. But in just a moment, you'll understand why that isn't it. I've heard people refer to a physical ailment as their cross or a lousy job as their cross. Yeah, I work at, I work at the, the sewer plant. Oh, it's a cross that I must carry. No. I've heard people refer to a difficult family member as their, as their cross, kind of like, yep, I got to spend Thanksgiving with my crazy brother-in-law again. It's a cross that I must carry. It's not what it means. Now, while some of those things may be difficult and they may be burdensome, that's not what Jesus meant. Let me explain it this way. Let me explain it this way. Um, some months later, as Jesus, and perhaps you know the story, um, from the place of judgment to the place of crucifixion, Jesus carried his cross. Um, one of the gospel writers fills in the rest of the story that it became so much for him that someone else helped Jesus carry, physically carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. But, but, but think of this. Think of being a bystander in the place there as somebody saw Jesus carrying the cross. As people watched him carry his cross, they gave very little thought about the weight of the cross or the burden of the cross, but they, were, they certainly knew the purpose of the cross. 
People did not go, oh, I feel so bad for him. That must be an awful heavy thing to carry. No, people looked at him and said, he has been, he has been, he has been convicted and he has been sentenced to die a horrible death. When people saw other people carrying a cross, the thing that hit their mind was not the weight of it, but the purpose of it. The purpose of a cross was to put someone to death. Crosses mean something is going to die. Let me say that again. Crosses mean something is going to die. So when Jesus, now this is before his cross, so only in retrospect did they fully appreciate what this, what this meant. Only later on did they realize, wow, I, now I get it. But when they first heard this, they're hearing, pick up your cross, not as a burden, not as something heavy, but to pick up your cross means <coughs> something is going to die. Jesus was telling them, if you're going to follow after me, there are some things in your life that are going to have to die. Not just surrender them, not just give your will up for my will, but there are some things in your life that are going to have to die. Let me bring it around to every one of us for just a moment here. If we're going to truly follow Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit, He's going to speak to us through His Word. He's going to speak to us and say, that thing that is in your life is not right. It must die. Don't carry it. Don't, don't, don't lift it around. Don't drag it from place to place. It means that something is going to have to die. In fact, in the very next verse, and you see it here, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's talking about death. Crosses mean something is going to die. If we're, if we're going to be his disciple, if we're really going to follow him, he's talking to the disciples and to the crowd, if we're truly going to follow after him, not only do we deny self, but something's going to die. The third thing Jesus said at the end of verse 34 was to follow me. Jesus said, follow me. And that quite simply means obey him. Jesus said, obey me. Jesus was a teacher. He was a, a Jewish rabbi. Uh, he, he, was, he was a person who gathered disciples around him and taught them. That was not uncommon. Other people did it. John the Baptist had done it. Other people during that time, and even still throughout history, Jewish history, there are Jewish rabbis who gather people around them and they teach them certain things. Jesus was a teacher. He taught with words. He taught with actions. And he wanted them. He, he's speaking to this crowd now. He's speaking to the disciples and the crowd. And he wanted them and us to do what he said and to do what he did. To follow his directives and to follow his example. Jesus was saying, if you truly want to follow after me, then whatever I tell you to do, do it. Whatever I tell you to do, do it. Follow me. It's interesting, isn't it, that... Uh, the first command, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, the first command given to anyone by Jesus was the command to follow me. Well, it begins calling the disciples with that, saying, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Obey me. Listen to my words and do my words. Watch my actions and do my actions. Jesus is saying that if you really talking to the crowd, if you really want to come after me, whatever I tell you to do, do it. The way that I live, live. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. So therefore, the flip would be true as well. If we do not hold to his teachings, if we reject his directives, if we say, no, I will not do what he said, then we are not his disciples. <clears throat> With all respect to your history and to mine, 
I believe Jesus is speaking to each one of us through his word today. And what he's saying to us, if we really get a grip on this, has the ability to turn our world a little bit upside down. And here's why. Many of us can look back at a point in our personal history to a time when we asked Jesus to come into our life. Maybe you remember that time. It may have been decades ago, it may have been last week, I, I don't know. But many of us can do that. I, I personally, I've shared this before, I personally cannot remember. I was so very young, I don't recall. I know that at some point I did, but I don't remember it. But there was a point when I, many of you, most of you, can look back and say, I, I remember when I asked Jesus to come into my life. And the memory of that, or the knowledge of that, the awareness that that happened at some point, even if we can't remember. We've looked at that beginning point almost as the totality of our walk with God. I'm a Christian because in, in my case, 1960-something, I gave my life to Jesus. Or I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because in 1970-something, Billy Graham was at that crusade and I was watching it and I surrendered my life. I was in that Sunday school class and the teacher or the youth leader or the, or the children's ministries director shared with me or a backyard Bible study. I remember when it happened in 1980-something or 90-something. I remember when that person prayed with me in, 19, in 2000. And, and we remember those moments and we say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because of what I did back then. And I thank God for beginnings. I thank God for the moment of birth. But I don't want to find all of my security in simply the knowledge of what happened a long time ago. I want to be able to declare that I am a follower of Jesus Christ today because I have denied myself and I have picked up my cross and I am following Him. And it's not simply because of a point in history where I gave my life to Jesus or a point in history where I was baptized in water. And those are so important. But I am a follower of Jesus. I am following after Him. Not necessarily, not, not simply because of what happened back then, but because of what I'm doing right now. So I'm, it's hard questions. This is why their world in this roller coaster, the high points and the downhill parts and the scary parts and the what's going on parts, why this turned them upside down? Because suddenly, these people that have been following Him for two years, who thought that they were following Him, who believed themselves to be following Him, and who most of them were in fact following Him, but one wasn't. One, a man named Judas, had not denied himself. He had not died to some things. He was in fact living in disobedience, though few people, with the exception of Jesus, knew it at the time. But in time, everyone would know, and we still know, that there was one who was in fact walking with Jesus, but was not truly a follower of Jesus. Whoa. You mean just knowing the time isn't good enough? Oh, I thank God. My youngest son is here today. He just finished up an internship. I, I remember the day in which he was born. 20 years ago, here at St. Luke's Hall. I remember that day. Precious memory. With your kids, you remember those. But you know what? He's not just my son because of what happened back in 1997, but because of what happened this last week and what happens today and what happens right now. He's my beloved son. We're in relationship because of the sub things that happened subsequent to that birth date. Are you truly a follower of Jesus? 
Don't speak. Don't raise your hand. But ask the question. Are you truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you really following after Him? Is it your will that's preeminent? Or is it His? When it comes between God's will being done and my will being done, which one is it? If there's something in your life that you just know has to be killed, has to be put to death, has to be placed on the cross, but you choose not to, what does that say about our walk with Him? We know that it's in the Word. We know what He said. We know the example that He gave. Jesus said, forgive and it will be And you will be forgiven. I've heard Christians say, I won't forgive. I can't forgive. And I I go, yeah, but Jesus commanded it. But Jesus went and died on the cross so that it's possible. And yet you refuse to do that? Well, then regardless of what happened in 1980 or 90 or 2000-something, then you've really demonstrated you're not really a follower of Jesus Christ. These are hard questions. Jesus' goal was never simply believers, but disciples. His objective was not simply to say, I believe in him, but for people to say and live, I am following him. A year later, after Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples around him. Only 11 at that point because Judas was gone. And he said, go therefore and make disciples. Disciples. You want a fulfilling life with Jesus Christ? Be a disciple, not just a believer. Be a disciple. Give yourself to Him so completely that some things die and other parts are rejected and other parts are surrendered. Other parts are obeyed. But give yourself completely to Him. He's looking for disciples. Are you a disciple? pretty heavy thing I've laid on this morning. I do so because he put it on my heart to bring it. It's pretty quiet here. I know I've had to, like every sermon that I've ever preached, I either have to live it before or live it after. (laughs) Mostly before. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. All that that means. I want that for you as well. I want want you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's disciples that He uses in powerful ways. It's disciples that He can use to make other disciples. Would you be His disciple? Bow your heads with me, please. I'm going to ask the uh, team if they will join me here. We're going to sing a song that we sang earlier, one pure and holy passion. We'll have those words for you on the screen in a moment. There's some lines that I want you to see. But before we do that, would you right now, right where you are, Would you make an altar of prayer? Perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. and Maybe you don't even know it's the Holy Spirit, but something is moving inside of you and you're going, man, I I just don't even... I want want that. I want to be a a disciple, not not just a believer. 
I thank God that you're a believer. If you gave your heart to Jesus, I thank God. I'm not putting that down. I'm simply saying that the totality of who you are in Jesus Christ is not simply the decision made months or years ago. It's you're standing in Him right now. It's your surrender to Him, your death to other things. It's your obedience to His Word. So right where you are, that altar of prayer, in a few moments, these altars will be open and you can certainly come. But I, I want you to make an altar right where you are. And I don't want you to say this out loud. You certainly can. You don't have to. Just, just Even just whisper it quietly. If you agree with this prayer, then pray it. Listen to what I pray and then if you agree with it, just just pray it quietly to yourself. Jesus, I thank you for dying for me. You gave your life for me. You rose from the dead for me. I want to be your disciple. I remember that moment when I gave my life to you. Or if I don't remember it, I I know for sure there was a point where I asked you in my heart because I've been following you ever since. but I want to be your disciple. Help me to deny myself, to surrender my selfhood to you, to surrender my identity, security and the safety of who I am or who I'm with or what I represent. Forgive me for taking on an identity other than servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I want you to be my Lord, my ruler, my king. I remove myself from the throne of my life. Would you reign in me? Lord, I come to you and I ask that you will put to death some things in my life. I will point them out, Lord. Your Holy Spirit already knows it before I do. I I acknowledge those things as sin. I acknowledge those things as wicked. And they need to be put to death. I'm not going to carry them around kill it. You're going to kill it. Only you can. I can't. I've tried. I can't. I've tried. But you can. You, the one who is victorious on the cross, can put to death the things in my life that are not of you. So kill them, Lord. Would you kill them now? I surrender them. I kill them. Just kill them. Eradicate them. Deliver me from them. Help me never to go back to them. Kill it and kill it, kill it in Jesus. Lord, help me to be a disciple in following you. Not following someone else, not following a teaching that is popular or prevalent in this world. It's not biblical. Help me to follow you, to obey you, to do what you say, to do what you did. so doing, Lord, in increasing ways, I will be a disciple. I will grow as a disciple in you. 
So Lord, thank you for turning my life upside down through this message. Didn't just didn't see it coming. Your declaration of Messiahship was followed by your declaration of your suffering and rejection and death and resurrection, which was followed in in rapid sequence by you looking at me and saying, surrender, die, obey. So this I pray. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you made that prayer, God honors it. Oh, He honors it. Thank you for praying. I'd like you to stand with me, please. I want to sing this in closing. Again, these altars are going to be open. Uh, there's, there's, I'm sure that there are some here that you're just going, wow, I, uh, that's, that's huge. It's huge. This is, this, is a, this is a turning point. By the way, this right here is a turning point in the entire gospel of Mark. This is the hinge point. From this point on, Jesus is going to go in a, not, a, not an entirely new direction, but it's going to, he's, he's, it's going to be more directed. You're going to see this subsequent weeks how how Mark chapter 8 these these verses are turning point things would never be the same after after Jesus' statement here my prayer that this will also be a hinge point for perhaps some of your lives and that you'll no longer simply be a victim of easy believism but that you will in fact be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ so these altars are open. But I want to sing this song uh, that we sang earlier. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen. Um, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. Follow hard after you. As we sing this, I'd like you to sing it as well. I'd really like you to sing it. In fact, don't sing it if you don't believe it, but if you do believe it, sing it and sing it out. Make this your prayer. Make this your uh, consecration, your dedication, your, your setting apart, your setting aside. This is my prayer. Let's sing it together. Give me one. Give me one pure and holy passion. Sing it out. Give me one magnificent obsession. Make this your prayer. Give me Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. Sing that part again. Give me one pure and holy passion.
your disciple. To grow as your disciple in the truth. Oh, this world. This world is empty, pale, and poor. Compared to knowing you, my love. Lead me on and I will run after you. say this. It's going to be a little bit strong and you know what? <laughs> if this makes you uncomfortable, well, so what? What Jesus said made people uncomfortable. Some of you, it's been a really long time since you've been in an altar of prayer. Some of you, it's been a really long time since you just pulled away into a corner of a sanctuary, got down on your knees if you're physically able to do that and just spend time with Jesus. And so you know what, the worship team is going to continue. Uh, I'm going to close. If you have an obligation, you feel free. But I just encourage you this morning just to make this your prayer. Oh, God, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your disciple. Even if you just do it for a few moments and then you have to go, then go. And, and don't feel bad about it. Just, just go. That's fine. But would you, would, you, would, you, would you make an altar? Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the ways in which you've spoken to us this day. I thank you, Lord, that you have stirred some people, that you've, 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 you've put them into an upside-down corkscrew. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for stirring us and shaking us. Thank you, Lord, for telling us that, that just one point in history, there's more than that. There's more than just a birth date. There's growing in you, becoming the disciple, increasingly becoming that disciple. Lord, it won't end until we see you face to face. It won't end until we breathe our last breath. But, oh God, may I never stop being your disciple. May I never stop growing in you. May I never stop that discipleship process. I'm not there yet, Lord. I'm not there yet. I still, there's so many things I need to learn. There's so many things I need to, to, to just give. Oh, there, there's so many things, Lord, that ways in which you want to use me. But, Lord, you only use, you can only use disciples. You empower disciples. You fill disciples to make other disciples so this is our prayer so Lord whether we go in these moments ahead or in the hours ahead after having made an altar of prayer with you oh God if we leave this place with this one holy and pure passion that is to follow hard after you not this world hard after you this is our prayer we thank you Lord we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you as you pray. God bless you as you go.